0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org.
1: All right, we are in a series that's going to last, I anticipate, for a while on big and small questions of the faith, questions that you have had about scripture and today's question is this why in the old testament did so many men even godly ones marry multiple wives and how should we think about polygamy now lest now i was sharing with a brother this morning that i'm guessing whereas last week's question there may have been some ambiguity i 'm guessing there's a general um, consensus in the room that says polygamy 's not right, but I would still bet many of you have this question: well, why did so many people that seemed like they were godly engage in it? And lest we think it's that distant, um, this same brother this morning told me about uh, a church that he visited in the area, and a man started going to the woman's Bible study and in week after week of his attendance at this Bible study, he began to um, promote his views of uh, what we would call polygyny, which is polygamy, where a man has more than one wife. So this is the general category, where the practice of having more than one wife or husband at the same time. Polygamy is not about, for example, um, if your spouse dies and then you get married as a widower or as a widow, you get married again and no longer uh, carrying that tag. That's not considered polygamy. And... um, But even locally, there are some families who are practicing this. Not only this, we've got this massive influx of foreigners coming into our country. Um, Polygamy is not something that is pushed down in Muslim circles. And uh, among the Mormons, it would be common, legitimate practice, and... So we want to consider, what does the Bible have to say about this? When did it show up in history, according to this text? And how would the Bible respond? That's what we're looking at. So we want to start today just getting our definitions down, because at times you'll hear terms that may throw you. Polygamy, normal term. But polygyny... Not as familiar, but it's a more specific term. It still is dealing with polygamy, but it's dealing with a man ha- when a man has multiple wives versus polyandry when a woman has multiple husbands. But in scripture, the only issue that we ever see raised is polygyny. That is, we don't see women having multiple husbands there there are no examples of that in this book where we what we do see though is men who have multiple wives and so we're going to look at this type of polygamy today specifically polygyny now there are some have counted up to 30 instances there's at least 20 major ones in scripture And that's what we're going to... I'm just going to overview some of them, some of the heavy hitters. Um, Very first polygamist is Lamech. Genesis chapter 4, Lamech took two wives. So it starts early. And you'll remember in Genesis chapter 3, two family trees are anticipated. There's the offspring of the woman... And there's the offspring of the serpent. And we're not looking for little snakes. We're looking for those who would identify themselves with the works of the devil and and bear in their hearts the same God hostility that the devil did. And so then Genesis has two family trees. Genealogies dominate the entire book. And there are linear genealogies in chapters 5 and 11. This is where you hear there's many kids... A gave birth to B, C, D, but then all you hear is the line of D. So A gave birth to B, C, D, D had E, F, G, G had, and there's only one line, one individual. And in chapters 5 through 11, the linear genealogies where a straight line is made from Adam up to Noah... And then he has three sons. And from Shem up to Terah, who has three sons, the first of whom is Abraham. The linear genealogies focus on the line of promise. But then there's, the book is also filled with a number of other genealogies. And all of those genealogies are focused on the rebels on the mission field. Through you, Abraham, the world all the families of the earth will be blessed, namely the families that spread out at the Tower of Babel, 70 of them that were part of the offspring of the serpent that needed to be redeemed, needed blessing. And Lamech is part of that line. Lamech is part of the offspring of the serpent. He's, this isn't a good thing. But then we come to, to Abe, right? Abraham, he takes Sarah, but Sarah is barren. So we read, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarah said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Big view of God. Big view of divine sovereignty. Go into my servant, Hagar, it may be that I shall obtain children by her heir. So, kind of a surrogate mothering. And her child will be my child because I'm the overseer of Hagar. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. That's not good. <laughs> when you're able to identify that it's sin. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian his servant and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Now Sarah grew old. She had Isaac, and then she died. And after that, we read, And Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. So Sarah and Hagar, Sarah dies, another wife. What do we do with that? How about Jacob? But in the evening, Jacob or Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. How a man could not know that he has the wrong girl, he was obviously intoxicated. But he marries Leah. But he worked for seven years for Rachel. So then he says, well, work another seven and you'll get Rachel. And he gets her right away. Jacob did so, completed her week with Leah. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. But it's not only... Rachel and Leah, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she is barren, she said to Jacob, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Sounds familiar, like grandma or grandfather, so grandkids. So she gave him Her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. This this inner sister competition and it results in polygamy. Moses. I don't think Moses had more than one wife. It would be very striking to me if he did. But here's the text that some go to to support it. Now the priest of Midian... Anybody remember his name? Jethro? Jethro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, had seven daughters, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She's named Zipporah. Then later we read in that text related to, um, well, gearing up to Miriam and Aaron's not liking the fact that Moses had a black, what appeared to be a black wife they didn't like that and so God said you don't like blackness I'll give you very whiteness and he turns Miriam leprous Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married for he had married a Cushite woman now it doesn't name her at this moment and the question is is this a different girl Cush was related to Ethiopia We heard that a number of times in Zephaniah. Ancient Ethiopia, black Africa. But it's possible, and some texts actually say this, that it wasn't a Cushite woman, it was a Cushanite woman. And in Habakkuk we read, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And this makes more sense to me. Um, I mean... I, the text I'm going to go to to actually argue that Moses affirmed one man and one woman makes a marriage, it, 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 I don't think he was going against this, even though we see other godly men who do. I, I don't think he was one of them. I think most likely this text is identifying both Kushan and Midian, same place, two names, one location, and it's telling us that this... Cushionite woman was the same one that Mer- Moses had married before and that was giving Aaron and Miriam trouble. The problem was not, was never multiracial marriage. In fact, the Bible celebrates that. The problem was interfaith marriage that the Bible always took exception to. And so even though it appears there may have been some kind of racist heart in Miriam and Aaron, God enters in and says, no, this is not a problem. Moses is fine. And God punishes Miriam for her perspectives. But David? David, yes. <laughs> Many. So, let's see how we can do. Saul gave David his daughter, Michael, for a wife. Okay, so David gets Michael. But not only Michael, you remember when Nabal dies, David claims Abigail. And then right after Abigail, in the, like right after the story of his claiming this woman of valor, then it says, oh yeah, he also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. So now we've got Michael, Abigail, Ahinoam, and it doesn't stop there. The sons were born to David at Hebron. This is before he moved on to Zion Jerusalem, as his throne room. So his first nine years in Hebron, he's king. And he has kids born to him from five different women. Ahinoam, Abigail, Makkah, Hagith, Abital, I do not account, six different women. And Eglah. These were born to David from all those women, a whole bunch of sons. Among them, Absalom. But he's not in Jerusalem yet, and so we have no mention of Bathsheba. But she gets to come soon. And, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. So he has a lot. And I'll just put this over on the side. Um... It never, the narrative never portrays David as a perfect guy, does it? And that's one of the authentic elements of Scripture. The documents outside the Bible are uh, very cautious to mention the sins of the main characters. But the Bible never, never hesitates. Because sin is real, and sin is why we need a Savior, and God exalts Himself and His Son always throughout the book. David, now we come to Solomon. 700 wives, 300 concubines, I I can't even imagine it. Most of these, I mean, he's in a power vacuum. Egypt's power had waned. Assyria was not yet rising, and so there's a power vacuum, and the ancient world gets overcome by the Davidic-Solomonic Empire. And one of the biggest ways that you expand your kingdom is through marriage alliances. Because if your daughter is married to the king, he'll be less tempted to crush you. And so, lots of examples... But what I want to to note is that these are examples in the area of description, not in prescription. You can describe that someone um, had a heroin addiction. But that's different than a doctor prescribing heroin. So we have lots of description in the Old Testament of what I'm going to call a problem, sin, wrong views of marriage. But at no point is there ever prescription that this is how you're supposed to do it. In fact, we're going to see prescription to be opposite of this. So we always have to be ready to work through Scripture, evaluating, okay, this is what's described, now what would God's perspective be on it? And it may not be affirming. Notice, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and He says, It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So, within a world where God is trying to orchestrate a community of sinners, there is at times the necessity to not simply tolerate, but to manage sin. That's what the laws do. They they set boundaries on sinful hearts so that chaos doesn't abound. But simply because there's laws describing or legislating, guiding, under the assumption that there are some people who are going to have multiple wives, at no point does the Bible affirm this. It simply tolerates it and manages it. Just like divorce. At no point does Scripture call for divorce. But it does tolerate it, and it does manage it in the situation. And I'm going to also distinguish between the possibility of... of uh, the different distinguish between divorce and polygamy shortly. Now, there are four texts along with the descriptions, four texts that people often go to to say, oh, the Bible does condone polygamy. And I want you to note that the mention of multiple wives is always in the if clause rather than in the this-is-how-it-should-be clause. All of these are going to be case studies. If this happens, then this is how you should respond. And the polygamy mention, the mention of multiple wives, is always, in all these texts... First three we'll look at. The fourth one is different. In the first three texts, it's always in the if clause. If this happens to be the case, that's not prescription. That's simply saying it's assumed. We're in a society where this is happening at times, and when it does, I'm going to work for the rights of the potential victims. So let's see how it works. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... Here's an example. This is a ver- this is different than uh, this is why often uh, people will want to translate this a bond servant rather than slave because it, it puts categories in our mind that don't equate exactly with what's going on. But if a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, so. She's coming in, I think, to be married to the master. But she's also gaining a distinct status. She's not simply wife. She's also servant, bond servant. So she has a a dual status here that's distinctive. Then he shall let her be redeemed. If if she does not please her master, he shall let her be redeemed. By another, she'd be freed from her obligations to him and could be taken into another relational bond. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. Notice how the law is protecting this girl. Since he's broken faith with her, he made promises, and now he's broken those promises, and now the law is actually working to protect the girl. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So now there's, there's another girl right on the scene. And if he, does not, if he does not do these three things for her, if he doesn't supply what a husband should supply her, then she shall be fully free. She shall go out for nothing without payment or money. Let's think about this text. Number one. She is both slave in the ESV and one who's been designated to her for himself. This is not the normal pattern for marriage. But it it is a special situation wherein she's going to have a dual status, both as servant and as wife. This likely means, and here we're having to read into the text, which is always, we've got to be careful, but the author, Moses, is assuming something of his audience. And so the question is what's he assuming? It seems as though he's assuming that this man desires to marry this woman whose status as wife would not also threaten his estate. So we have a a different setting. I've seen a comparable setting in Ethiopia working through our adoptions wherein the way that, for example, this man may have been married before. And in marrying... The entire estate planning was established. And with his first wife, he may have had children. Now, it's possible that that wife has died, and now he's wanting to marry another. But he takes her in as servant because if she did not have the servant status, then she would, by nature, this new marriage, would any children that they would have would claim all assets from the previous relationship, which could cut off all opportunity for his previous children. And so for the sake of his children, say he had a limited amount of land, and he had six kids. Now if any new children come from this new relationship, a status other than servant could relinquish all the opportunity for those six other kids. We, we don't know what's going on here, but it seems as though most likely it has something to do with securing the estate. But what's clear is he still wants to marry. Comparable situation, perhaps. I was wondering if you look back at Abraham. Now, I want you to notice also that this is a text that is focused on protecting the girl so that she is not abused. This man takes her on, whether as a second wife or a second wife comes after the fact right here. And the text is trying to protect her. And the Bible does that often. Protecting the vulnerable. So this was, what it appears to be doing is seeking to ensure that a second wife was not a second class wife. Ever. She's supposed to gain from her husband even as a second wife. Not prescribing you are supposed to have second wives, or even that you can have second wives. But when you come into a situation and he takes a second wife, how do you treat this other girl who might have servant status, whereas the other one may not? If she is your wife, you treat her like a wife, which necessitates three things. Not diminishing her food, not diminishing her clothing, and nurturing marital intimacy he will be the provider for her and he will protect her and treat her as if she's one with him failure to do so was grounds for freedom that's the language paul uses in second corinthians sorry first corinthians chapter 7 wrestling with what does it mean that she's free if her man does not want to be married to her anymore. That's Paul's wrestling with that in 1 Corinthians 7, and I think this is a text that informs that text. Failure to do so was grounds for freedom from service. Someone else could redeem her. Verse 8, and for marriage. She... She was free from this marriage bond. This was describing how the divorce could be legitimized. And it was based on the husband not performing his responsibilities as a husband. So, in short, I don't think this text prescribes polygamy. It's tolerating it and managing it this would be, it may be worth understanding, the Bible uses language like bride price. That is not a purchase of a girl. All that money would actually go to the father-in-law and if her husband were to die, all that money would be her dowry that would then keep her alive for the rest of her life if she were never able to marry again. Here, again, slave, um, she is being given over as a household servant without the freedom to get out of the contract or to say, I'm done. I'm going to give you my two weeks notice. She's not given that allowance. But there's a limit. And so... What I want you to see is actually she's not being treated as property. She's being treated as person. This is designed, this entire law is designed to make it so that she can't be treated as property, but has to be treated not as a second-class woman, but as a full-blown wife. Even though now there's a competing wife. Leviticus 18.18, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Now, some will say, this is prescribing polygamy so long as it's not a sister. Because we see how the problem happens with sisters. Jacob and Leah, good exa- Rachel and Leah, a good example. So as long as they're not sisters, this is calling for that. And I, I don't think that's it. I think it's saying that God doesn't even allow a sister to be a second wife. It does not permit a marriage to a second wife so long as she's not a sister. I don't see a prescription for polygamy here. Third text. If a man has two wives, notice the assumption. This is toleration and management, not prescription. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, now God's going to speak in order to protect the children of the unloved girl. He is managing broken situations and protecting the vulnerable. Then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. And that was the common pattern in biblical times, that the firstborn received the double portion of inheritance, and then the rest was divvied out among his siblings. So, give him a double portion, the right of the firstborn is his. So this is not a law about polygamy, it's a law about protecting the rights of the firstborn. Regardless of whether the child is the son of the preferred wife or the wife who is not loved. Last potential text that is pointed to, that I'm aware of, to support polygamy. Oh, I just have a point here. The mention of having two wives, to, to say that that legitimates polygamy is like going to Deuteronomy 23.18, which says the prostitute is not allowed to go, or the, the wares of the prostitute, she makes money through her prostitution. She's not allowed to take that money and then give it as an offering to the temple. It's a, that would be an abomination to the Lord. It's not prescribing the legitimation of prostitution. It's tolerating what's going on, I recognize it's happening, and now I'm going to manage it. So I I see a similar logic at work here that doesn't hold. Now, you remember when David, rather than having an affair or having adultery, it seems more to me like rape, and I can argue for that. When he rapes Bathsheba, who has absolutely no control over the matter, he is the monarch who should be out in battle, and he's at home, and he sees her, and he takes her, and she becomes pregnant. Nathan the prophet shows up and says, you are the man. Now, this is what we read. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you, says the Lord, king over Israel, and I delivered you out of, all the, out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. that text doesn't mean God is saying, look at, it, I gave you multiple wives. I would have even given you more, and you're not satisfied. I don't think so. Let's consider some things. In mentioning, I gave you your master's wives, I think a point is being made here about how Absolute David's control was of all that Saul had gained during his reign. He is now standing as an uncontested monarch, and the mention of his wives that he got, that he got Saul's concubines and wives was testimony that no one else could have received those. But the fact that he even had control of Saul's harem identified the absolute authority that, Saul, that David had been given over Saul's kingdom. Now, what's striking here is that David, um, I, I call this a curse. God is punishing Saul for his sin, and it's complete in that even his entire family is taken away. Now what's ironic is that in this very text of of, uh, 2 Samuel 12 God declares the same thing is going to happen to David. Because his son Absalom is going to sleep with all of David's wives in the sight of the nation. And God's going to bring it about as punishment on David. The The point doesn't appear to me, and this I think is the toughest text, but the point I don't believe is to say God was approving of you having multiple wives, but rather to identify the vastness of the authority that God gave David that he has now put in jeopardy by claiming a wife that was not his own. The toleration is this. At the the covenant with Noah, God says, I will never again punish the earth with a flood. And he says the reason he won't do it is because man's heart is wicked from his youth. That's strange logic. Genesis 8, 21 and 22. I will not destroy the world again in this way because man's heart is wicked from his youth. And he's talking to... At this time, there's only eight people on the earth. Noah has come off the ark. He has a wife. He has three sons with their three wives. Eight people. And that's the exact phrase that he'd used in Genesis 6, 5 to say why he was bringing the flood about. Because all of mankind is wicked from his youth. And nothing's changed. Indeed, the very people on the ark look just like mankind They were wicked, and in order to bring about the cross, God made an unbelievable promise. I will tolerate sin until I deal with it. All of us are beneficiaries of the Noahic covenant. That God does not intrude immediately and wipe out all humanity. It's a necessary, necessary element in order to bring about the cross. To create a covenant relationship with sinners. God alone, the law by itself, as Paul says in Romans 8, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending His own Son. He, the law couldn't create in us the power to obey. So God had to purchase that for us in the person of Christ and apply all of that all of Christ's perfect obedience to us because we couldn't do it on our own. So there's no record that David's wives, in all the rest of the book, never are Saul's wives ever listed. So even though God put them under David's authority and he had the opportunity to marry each of them as the monarch, never does it ever say he did. Not only that, God would punish David as he did Saul. So, time's ticking. Let me get to our answer. An overview. From Genesis up to the end of Solomon's reign, when the kingdom is divided, we see 15 examples of polygamy. Lamech, the sons of God in Genesis 6, Nahor, Abraham, Esau, Jacob, Ibzon, Abdon, Samson, Elkanah. This is Hannah's husband, Elkanah, with Peninnah, his wife. Saul, David, Solomon. Now, in the divided kingdom, with all the multiple kings in the north, 20 in the north, 20 in the south, we read about Rehoboam, Abijah, Ahab, Jehoram, and potentially Joash. Joash would be 20, without him, it would be 19. Thirteen of these names listed are men who had absolute power under God meaning they had absolute control to do what they would and and no one could say anything to them because they were the king in a distinctive way. The two main reasons that we see polygamy in the Bible are because of barrenness or because of political alliances, a desire to stretch out the kingdom or... I want to participate in the ultimate call of God to fill the earth. And my body won't let me. Whether their motives were that pure, I don't know. But that deep sense of the need for an heir was thoroughgoing. And it moved people in this direction. But here's what I want to stress. The Bible never condones polygamy of any sort, but it does manage it. All prescriptions, when it comes to this is what you should do, they all of them focus on one man and one woman. Man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. And then it says, therefore, prescription. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall be one flesh. One flesh. A man, a woman. This is the vision, the ideal. Malachi assumes a marriage between one man and one woman. The Lord was a witness between you and the wives of your youth. No, the wife of your youth. It just assumes you've broken your marriage covenant, and it does not even, when it talks about it, it doesn't talk about it as a multiple wife thing. This is big. In ancient Israel, the ideal Israelite was the king. And in Deuteronomy 17, this is one of the explicit spots where it prescribes what the ideal Israelite... This is where I'm supposed to be looking as a model. And in there it prescribes this. He shall not acquire many wives. It's illegal. God will not allow it. And then... You can see there's three big issues, many women, many wives, much wealth, and war horses in Deuteronomy 17. And all three of those, the writer of Kings goes out of his way to say, look, Solomon had many war horses. Look, Solomon had much wealth. Look, Solomon had many wives and it's wanting us to read the history of the covenant in light of the covenant for us to be able to say this is not good. Jesus, when he's looking back in this context talking about divorce but notice what he says. He says this is not how it was in the beginning when God made them male and female therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Jesus, what comes out of him naturally is the first principle one man, one woman coming together, and the two shall be one flesh. Paul in Ephesians 5 let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Prescription is assuming one man, one woman. The question at hand was levirate marriage. That's levir is Latin for brother-in-law. And levirate marriage is what we see operative in first off the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah had three sons. His oldest was married to Tamar and the son died. So then he gave him his second gave his second son. He was supposed to give his third son Shelah to Tamar based on the principle that if the brother-in-law, if the brother dies, the next in line will come in in order to preserve offspring. At no point do I... We see the same thing then in the story of um, Ruth and Boaz. She's looking for the kinsman redeemer, the next in line, my husband's dead, who will come in and stand in and play the role of the nearest kinsman. But I never see anywhere in, in the Old Testament that would suggest the kinsman redeemer who steps in and marries the wife of his dead brother or dead near relative, that it would ever allow that marriage to happen if that relative was married. So even in leveret marriage, I don't see a permission of multiple wives at any point. None of the examples we have have that ever as, as a case. And fit within the whole flow of of Scripture, it seems to me um, the assumption is a kinsman redeemer has to be single to fulfill his role. But we could talk more about that as well. How about church leaders? All of you are supposed to be able to look to your elders as images of... What does it mean to live as a Christian? To be above reproach. To be a husband of one wife. A one woman man. This is God's picture of ideal that's supposed to lead His people. And polygamy is not part of the option. Not only this. See if you can track with me here. Similar to the way that homosexuality would warp the picture that God has made. In marriage similar to the way that an egalitarian marriage saying that everything is equal and there's no head and no helper similar to the way that that would warp things polygamy blurs marriage's purpose of displaying Christ's love for his singular bride, the church. Consider Paul's language here now he starts out in the plural, husbands, love your wives. That might sound blurry, but he didn't say, husband, love your wives. He said, husbands, love your wives. But notice how he talks. As Christ, one head, loves the church. Not the church and. There are two parties in this relationship. The head and the helper. He gives himself up for her, not for them. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. There's just two parties here. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing. That she, namely the church, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, here it is plural again, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, but then notice what he does. He who loves his wife loves himself. He can talk in the plural, husbands, raise your hand, husbands, love your wives, raise your hand, but then he can look, and when he looks at the individual, when he looks at the individual, he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Keeping marriage intact between one man and one woman is about preserving the God-given gift to the world of putting on display the covenant love of Christ with His bride. He has one bride, not more than one. He is always Christ, and we are always the church, and we can't make them equal or reverse the order. There are not two churches in relationship. Nor is Christ in relationship with Himself. There is Christ and there is His people. And they together make up this relationship that will last forever. And marriage on earth is supposed to be a picture of that. And that's why polygamy, one reason why polygamy is not legitimate for God's people. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, not brides, have been made ready. So here's our takeaway. And this is real. This is beautiful. Celebrate marriage between one man and one woman as God designated it. That's what you can do for yourself, for your girl, for your guy. Celebrate it. Our American calendars have even given you this day to remember, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this. Celebrate it. But not only that, this is also important, and the world doesn't want to hear it. But nurture a proper view of right order in your home. Teach it to your kids. Let them see it modeled, and then instruct them on why it's important for one man and one woman to be together and why that is supposed to last. Share it with your coworkers. Explain it to your families. The issue that's at stake here that we're ending with, as I said, impacts beyond polygamy to homosexual relationships, and then also just to the general view of the role of husband and wife. We're holding something that is right and beautiful and it's worth putting on display because the reality is beautiful and it's the only hope of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us, for making us your bride, an entire corporate church that you call your own. We want to, in our own relationships here on earth, display you rightly and honor you as God. I pray that you would sustain marriages in this room and be a help and an upholder. God, I also just praise you that even when the picture of marriage gets broken, you're a healer and a help, and the reality doesn't have to stop. I pray that we would be a people who celebrate marriage your way. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant For his glory in Christ.